Great to greet all of you. I want to welcome all the folks joining us online. Thanks so much for being a part of our service today. If you got a Bible, I want you to take it and turn after a long delay. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, find the 18th chapter, and we're going to return this weekend to our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew called Let's Talk About Jesus. And while you're turning there, let me just pause for a moment and tell you that Friday night we had our fourth annual uh, Night to Shine prom experience for special needs folks. And it was just, honestly, I can't find enough words or strong enough words to describe how incredible it was. And so I want to say a great big thank you to everyone who served in a variety of different ways. Maybe you were there serving on site. Maybe you volunteered uh, to serve behind the scenes uh, in preparation. Maybe you gave donations to help make it possible. Whatever you did, thank you so much. You know, one of our core strategies here to live out our mission and our vision at Mount Pleasant is to serve others across the street and around the world. And I don't know that we do that any better than when we have night to shine every February. It was just spectacular. Let's celebrate that together this morning as we begin. If you're on social media, then you should look at uh, the church's pages, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and see the pictures. They're just incredible. There maybe even is a video of me dancing, which is incredible, and uh, you would be blessed by viewing that. All right. I'm so excited to be back in the Gospel of Matthew. We began this study on on the weekend of November 26th and 27th in 2016. That's when we began this study. And I told you at the time we were going to work our way verse by verse through the Gospel, but because there are 28 chapters in Matthew, uh, what I was going to do is divide it up into sections uh, to bring some variety in. At different times when we completed a section, I took a break and did a brief series for three, four, five weeks, whatever, just to continue to break that up. But last fall, we had an extended period of uh, being away. And and in fact, it's been almost six months since we've been uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm so excited uh, to return. And as we return, we begin a new section of Matthew's Gospel. It's Matthew chapter 18, 19, and 20. And I'm calling that new section Growing Deeper. Growing Deeper. And here's why. Because in those three chapters, Matthew 18, 19, and 20, Jesus teaches the disciples what it looks like to go grow deeper in their faith and in their calling. Let me remind you, or maybe tell you if you're new, that as we were finishing up our last section of Matthew's gospel, and we called that section the power of faith, we came to a verse that marked a shift in the ministry of Jesus. It was Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. I'll put it up on the screen so we can all see it together. Matthew 16, 21, and here's where we see the shift. Note how it begins. From that time on, everyone say that. From that time on. This is a shift in Jesus' ministry. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. From that time on. And here's what the shift looked like, practically speaking. Jesus makes a shift in his ministry from spending his time and giving his focus for the most part to the crowds that followed him to spending his time and giving his focus for the most part to his 12 disciples. Now, there was a time in Jesus' ministry when he was incredibly popular and thousands of people followed him. I'm not embellishing that. Just think about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, such a significant miracle that's the only one recorded in all four gospels, the only miracle Jesus performed that's recorded in all four gospels. But it says that there were 5,000 men there that day. 
Well, 5,000 in and of itself is a large number, but it wouldn't be beyond reason to think that there could have been 10, 15, 20,000 people there hearing what Jesus had to say. Large, large crowds followed him. They wanted to see what he was going to do and hear what he was going to say. And Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, focused a great deal of his attention on the crowds. But beginning here in Matthew 16, 21, he shifted his focus from the crowd to the disciples. And the reason why was he needed to begin to prepare them for what was ahead. Because as we get deeper into Jesus' vocational ministry, we get closer to the cross. And he needs to prepare them for what's about to happen. And that's what he does following Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. Now, if you remember, the thing that really signaled the shift was a little bit earlier in John, or excuse me, Matthew's gospel in chapter 16, when one day Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the disciples have kind of made a shift among themselves and they're beginning to see in a more clear picture exactly who Jesus is and he knows that they're ready for him to spend time beginning to prepare them. And so that's what he begins to do and he tries to help them grow deeper in their faith and deeper in their calling. Now listen, I don't want you to be concerned if you're new, if you're a guest or you're new to our church that you haven't been a part of the previous uh, studies from the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to be so blessed by picking it up here in Matthew chapter 18, I promise you, because this is a great, great section of the Gospel. So having said all of that, if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture this morning, and let's dive into this passage that's before us. Our text is Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. You follow along as I read. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes this, or excuse me, whoever welcomes this, a little child rather, like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out gouge it out because it is better and throw it away because it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off in the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. All right, there it is. You can be seated. As always, we ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, Matthew 18 begins with the disciples presenting Jesus with a tremendous opportunity to teach them 
about growing deeper in their faith and deeper in their calling with this question. They ask him the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And if you know anything at all about the disciples, you know that this is a constant topic of conversation among them. And they seem particularly focused on this question as Jesus gets closer to the end of his ministry. We see the question literally asked here in chapter 18, verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We're going to get a little bit further into Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 20, one day, Matthew tells us that the mother of James and John come to Jesus and says, please let one of my sons sit on your right hand and one of my sons sit on your left hand in the kingdom. Now, Matthew records that request coming from James and John's mother. If you read Mark's account, it says the request comes directly from James and John, but obviously they're concerned about what their position is going to be in the kingdom of heaven. It's not recorded in Matthew's gospel, but in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 22, when he tells the story of the Last Supper, this is the night before everything happens for Jesus. The disciples during the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, are arguing among themselves about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For whatever reason, they are obsessed with this question. And Jesus knows this is a big problem. Remember, he's trying to teach them how to grow deeper in their faith and deeper in their calling. And so, he does something unexpected. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 2, said, He called a little child and had him stand among them and said, I tell you the truth, unless you change. Everyone say change. Change. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I tell you, friends, that's got, that had to have leave the disciple, left the disciples absolutely stunned. They never expected Jesus to do that. They never expected him to use a small, helpless, innocent child to illustrate what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. The word that Matthew uses for child is the Greek word paideon. And it describes, it can describe a child that's anywhere from a small infant all the way up to maybe like a toddler. My best guess is it was an infant or at the very least a very young toddler. Now, my youngest grandson is two, almost three, and he's a pretty good-sized boy because I was wrestling with him between services, but, and he still likes to be held, but he's pretty big. I would imagine it would be somebody smaller. My guess is maybe somewhere around a year old, maybe a little bit older. And I say that because in Mark's account of the same story, it says Jesus holds the child in his arms. And so the bottom line is Jesus uses a child as an object lesson. He holds this baby in his arms and says, this is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God because what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to change the perspective of the disciples and move it from a perspective of self-promotion to a perspective of humility. Now, having said that, here's what I want to do with the remaining time I have. I'm going to use four words. You can tell that from your insert this morning. I'm going to use four words to describe exactly what it is that Jesus is trying to teach the disciples about growing deeper in their faith and deeper in their calling. And I believe this is relevant to all of us today. What Jesus was teaching the disciples so many years ago, he wants to teach you and me today. So if you're someone who likes to take notes, I want you to write down next to number one, the very first word. And the very first word is enter. Write down the word enter. And then notice the tagline on the screen. You enter the kingdom as a child. You enter the kingdom as a child. There are two significant things that Jesus says about this in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you change, and listen to me, friends, that's the significant word. That's the important word, change. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
I've got a limited amount of time to cover these four words, so let's cut right to the chase. Here's what Jesus is saying about these disciples who are so obsessed with the question about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I'll put it in my own words. He says, you're worried about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, but I'm telling you, with that kind of attitude, you're not even going to be in the kingdom. With that kind of attitude, I'm talking about this attitude that's only concerned about what my position is going to be. With that kind of attitude, you're not even going to be in the kingdom. And the key word, again, is that word change. In the original language of the New Testament, that's the Greek word strepho. And literally, it means turn, or it means to turn oneself around. It's very close in meaning to the word repent in the New Testament, which is the Greek word metanaeo which means to change your mind, but the practical implication is to change your mind in a way that changes the direction of your life. I wonder if the disciples caught what Jesus was trying to say. He was saying, stop worrying about your position in the kingdom because you're not even going to get in the kingdom unless you change unless you turn yourself around. If you got an older version of the Bible this morning than my NIV, maybe your Bible uses the word converted for change. Unless you are converted, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the key thing. He says, you've got to turn yourself around or you're not even going to get in the kingdom. Stop worrying about your position. There's something more important at stake here. And then he gets more specific in verse 4 when he says, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The word humbles there, that's a great word in the, in the Greek. It's the word tapinao, and it means making low. That's the idea. That's the definition of humbles in the original language. It describes making yourself low. And so Jesus is saying, listen, here's God's view about your position or anyone's position in the kingdom. The one who lowers himself is the one who is elevated. Think about that. Jesus is telling us that from God's perspective, the person who lowers himself is the person who is elevated. In the eyes of God, the one who makes himself low is the one who is elevated. That's so powerful. And that takes us back to this illustration of a child and Jesus talking about the attitude or the humility of a child. See, here's the thing about small children, especially the, the kind of children at the small age that we would be talking about here. They are not pretentious, not little small children, not infants or tiny toddlers. They make no claims of worthiness. They make no claims of greatness on their own. They're open. They're trusting. They're dependent. They don't think of... Listen, here's the thing about small children. They don't think of themselves as better than anyone else until someone comes along and teaches them something different. How many of you know that's true? In the beginning, children view everyone the same. And Jesus says, this is your example. This is what God is looking for. You want to talk about greatness? This is what God is looking for. This kind of humility, the person who's willing to make themselves low, that's the one who's exalted in the eyes of God. I don't do this hardly any, uh, hardly at all anymore, but in my previous churches when they were small, I used to love to share the gospel with children. It wouldn't be an uncommon thing. A 
little boy or little girl would start asking their mom and dad about what it means to be a Christian and things like that. And they'd say, Pastor, would you talk to our, our son or daughter? And sure. And sometimes I would do it one-on-one, -on -one, and sometimes I'd do it with a group of children. But I loved to share the gospel with children. You know why? Because they were so innocent, so open, so accepting of what you shared with them. And my plan for sharing the gospel has always revolved around three words, separation, substitution, and salvation. The separation of sin, we're all sinners, and that separates us from God. There's nothing we can do about it on our own. God loves us so much, he did something about it for us and sent Jesus to die a substitutionary death on the cross. He took our place, and on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. And then we talk about salvation. How, how do you receive the free gift of salvation? And when we talk about the separation of sin, I'd say things like, have you ever disobeyed your mom and dad? Yeah. You ever said something unkind to someone? Yeah. You ever done something unkind, broken the rules? Yeah. And I talk about how all of us have, regardless of our age, and we're, that, that, that's, Bible calls that sin, how the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there was always great clarity in their minds about understanding that reality. And we talk about the substitutionary death on Christ on the cross and how God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to do that and what it cost Jesus on the cross. And they were just, they would always just be just so focused on everything that I had to say. And you could just tell in their little face how moving that story was. Then we would talk about what you have to do to receive the gift of, of salvation, the free gift, and how you have to put your faith and your trust in Jesus to accept him as your savior, to embrace him as your savior. Well, I've always thought that it was important for us when we became Christians to make a confession of our faith. I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so I talked to them about that confession. I baptized a woman last night at the end of the service who came to us through the impact center. How cool is that? And, and, and I took her confession of faith in the, in the water. I always take somebody, I say, I'm going to take your right hand and I'm going to repeat these words after me in the presence of God and all these witnesses. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, just like Peter said in Matthew 16, the, the son of the living God, and I confess him as the Lord of my life. And I would talk to those little kids about that. I said, do you know what it means for somebody to be the Lord of your life? No. Do you know what it means for somebody to be the boss of your life? Yeah, I know what that means. Are you willing to let Jesus be the boss of your life for the rest of your life? Yeah. They never argued with me about it. Isn't that the way children are? And so you got the disciples over here who've spent all this time with Jesus. They've seen and experienced the reality of, of the glory of God and the presence of Jesus. And all they're concerned about is their position in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, listen, you don't need to be worried about your position. You need to be worried about getting in because unless you change, unless you are converted, unless you turn yourself around, you're not even going to be there. You got to become humble like a little child. We enter the kingdom like a little child with humility. We don't come to God and say, hey, here I am. I'm the guy you've been waiting for. You don't got much work with me. I've been so good all my life, it's incredible. That's not the way it happens. We come and we recognize our helplessness and our hopelessness before a holy God, and we're overwhelmed with the love and the grace and the mercy that offers us the free gift of the forgiveness of our sin and the opportunity for eternal life. And that's the first thing Jesus teaches. Let me give you a second word. 
The second word that he uses to teach them about how to grow deeper in their faith and their calling is the word welcome. And the tagline is welcome each other as you would welcome a child. To me, this is a fascinating point, but it's also a very convicting point. I'll talk about that in a moment. Look back at verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus says, and whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Now, I want you to follow me here for a moment because this is important. Jesus has just told us that we enter the kingdom like children. Or in other words, salvation comes to those who humble themselves like a little child. Remember, children aren't pretentious. They don't think that they're better than anyone else. They're open. They're humble. They're trusting. They're dependent. And you can go on and on and on. And now, what Jesus is doing is he's telling us that when we welcome a child like this, And when he says that, he's talking about someone who has become like a child, spiritually speaking. When we welcome a child like this, someone who's become a child, spiritually speaking, so they can receive the gift of salvation, we welcome him. So what he's telling us is that when we welcome one another as believers, because hopefully all of us have become like children, spiritually speaking, to receive the free gift of salvation, when we welcome each other, we welcome him. That's easy to understand if you're a parent. If you're a parent, you can, you, that makes total sense. I have two children that I love dearly, and they're grown now. One of them's 34, one of them's 30. They're grown now. But here's the deal. It doesn't matter how old they ever get. My heart is so profoundly attached to my two children that the way other people treat them has a tremendous impact on me because I will forever be inseparably linked to my two children. And so the bottom line is this. If you mistreat my children, you mistreat me. How many of you as a parent know exactly what I'm talking about? No question. We don't even have to think about that, do we? You mistreat my children. You mistreat me. Because we are inseparably linked to our children. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus feels the exact same way about every single believer who belongs to him. And that's you if you're a Christian. If you become like a child, spiritually speaking, you've humbled yourself and by faith receive the free gift of salvation, he's talking about you. Jesus is inseparably linked to every one of us who are Christians. You remember the story of Saul, uh, Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus? This is an interesting thing to me. I'm going to turn in my Bible to Acts chapter 9. I'm going to put Acts chapter 9 verses 3 and 4 up on the screen, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Listen to me as I read. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now we begin with verses 3 and 4. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Me. Why did Jesus say me? Because Jesus is inseparably linked to his family, to his children, to his believers. It's always going to be that way. He's inseparably linked to us. And so he says in verse 5 back in Matthew 18, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. The word welcomes, the Greek word dehomai. Sometimes it's translated receives. It, it's a word that, that describes welcoming or receiving someone with kindness or special attention like an honored guest. And that's why I said this point, remember I said a moment ago, this is fascinating and it's very convicting to me. This point is convicting to me because as a Christian, I'm not, I can be guilty of not always receiving other Christians with this kind of kindness. How about you? Can I be real honest and transparent with you for a moment? Sometimes pastors, I don't know if every pastor would tell you this, but sometimes pastors struggle with some of the people in their churches. 
for a variety of different reasons. And I'd be lying if I told you that there weren't times when I was walking down through the church going one way and I saw someone coming the other way and I stopped and I went the other way because I just didn't want to talk to them. I'm kind of ashamed to say that, but it's the truth. And that's why this is a convicting point to me because Jesus is teaching us here that the way we treat others is the way we treat him. And I can't imagine never wanting a moment when I wouldn't want to welcome Jesus. You got anybody in your life like that? Write down the third word. It's not you, by the way, if you're wondering. <laughs> now I'm going to, for the next few weeks, every time I see any of you, I'm going to go the other way and I'm just going to go. <laughs> the third word is protect. And the tagline is protect each other like we protect a child. Now, I don't have to explain that, do I? We all know that we would do anything to protect a small, innocent child, right? We would do anything to keep a child safe. We look back at Matthew chapter 18 in verses uh, 6 through 9, and, and Jesus gets real. He, is, he gets real uh, deliberate with his language here. He says, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. And he just says such things must come because that's the natural reality of living in a sinful fallen world. Sin will come because we live in a sinful fallen world, but he's just saying don't be the one through whom it comes just in case you were wondering. And then he goes on to say, if your hand or your foot caused you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now look up here. We have, that's not the first time we've heard Jesus say those things, is it? He said, those, he said similar things all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, I believe it was. Maybe it's Matthew chapter 5. But this is a significant passage of Scripture. And again, when he talks about little ones, he's talking about someone who has become like a child, spiritually speaking, to receive salvation. We just talked about the truth that the way we treat each other as believers is the way we treat Christ because he's inseparably linked to us. And so one of the worst things we could do with each other is to cause each other to sin. In fact, Jesus says we'd be better off dead than doing that. That's literally what he says. And he says it in such a descriptive way. It would be better for, for you to have a millstone, a large millstone hung around your neck and be drowned into the depths of the sea. This is such a serious instruction for all of us as Christians. This is such a serious instruction for all of us as the church. Jesus is so concerned about holiness that he speaks in strong language here about how important it is for us to protect one another and not cause each other to sin. How do you think we should communicate this as a church? How do you think we should communicate our understanding of the seriousness of, it, of, this, of these words as a church? Maybe what we should do is we should put a sign out there in the foyer, or maybe we should just get a big banner and put it on the side of the building out here where all the traffic drives by every day, and we say something like this, welcome to Mount Pleasant Christian Church. We're glad that you're here, but if any of you causes any of us to sin, you'd be better off dead. <laughs> and maybe we could spice it up with an illustration of someone being thrown off of a cliff into the depth of the sea with a large millstone hung around their neck. How many guests do you think that would draw into our church? <laughs> it gives a whole new definition of seeker-sensitive and seeker-friendly. 
But my point is, you can't ignore the words of Jesus. You know there's a movement in the modern-day church and a lot of modern-day churches today to try to separate themselves from the Old Testament because the view of the Old Testament is that it's just too harsh. God is too harsh in the Old Testament. And so let's just focus on the New Testament, and in particular, let's just focus on Jesus. And I love those pictures of Jesus in the New Testament, like in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman or John chapter 8 with the woman caught in adultery because of the love and the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the sensitivity and the heart of Jesus. We love this, but that's not the only picture of Jesus. Jesus in the New Testament. Here Jesus is saying that if you're a believer and you cause another believer to sin, then you'd be better off drowned with a large millstone hung around your neck, thrown into the depth of the sea. You go back, you go to Revelation and read Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and the letters Jesus dictated to John that went to the seven churches and see the harsh language that he uses there. Listen, there's not a different God in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. It's the same God. You want to understand the difference of the Old Testament and the New Testament in an overly simplified way? In the Old Testament, we see how God feels about sin. In the New Testament, we see how God feels about sinners but it's the same God. And he is so serious about our responsibility to personal holiness that he says, don't you cause someone else to sin. And then he goes into that hyperbole that he used in the Sermon on the Mount. And hyperbole is just intentional exaggeration. If your hand or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off. If your eye cause you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. He's not talking about doing that literally. He's just making a strong point about sin. Somebody at the end of service last night said, I thought you were going to say we we're going to put some baskets down front to throw in all, all the, the body parts that we were going to have to get rid of because of our sin. And I thought to myself driving home, that, that means that we'd all have difficulty getting out of the building because we'd all be blind and crippled after it was over. But Jesus is so serious about our personal holiness. He hates sin because Jesus, better than anybody, knows how destructive sin is. And so that's why he uses the strong language that he does. I have more than I could say about that, but I'm out of time. So let me move on to the fourth word right down next to number four. The fourth word is value. Jesus says we should value each other as you would value a child. And we see that back in verses 10 and 14. Let me just, through 14, let me just read verse 10 again. See, he says, see to it, or excuse me, see that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Once again, remember, he's talking about, when he says little ones, he's talking about someone who has become like a child, spiritually speaking, to receive the free gift of salvation. He's saying, don't devalue anyone because when it comes to God's children, no one is inferior. Everyone has value to God. Everyone has the same level of value to God. And I've been asked so many times over the years what the meaning of the latter part of verse 10 is where he says, for I tell you, he's talking about these little ones, the believers. He says, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And there are so many different answers and explanations people give to those words. Let me tell you what I think, and let me just preface it. Did you hear what I just said? I'm going to tell you what I think. I think. You want to think something different, that's fine with me. And I'll preface it by using this verse from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, uh, where the Hebrew writer writes about angels and says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? My default mode when it comes to trying to understand what the Bible says has always been, I've told you this before, this rule of interpretation, when the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. When the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. And so here's what I believe. I believe the simplest way to understand this verse is that the angels of God are in heaven 
and one of the things that they do is they're assigned to care for believers like you and me. And I, I think we can get this picture in our mind of angels watching the face of God and whenever God demonstrates concern over what's happening with one of his children or the way one of his children is being treated, then they can be dispatched to heaven from heaven, rather, to come to the aid of that child, that believer. How does that happen? I don't know how it happens. I can't even guess the number of ways that could happen as we live in, in not just in a physical world, but in a spiritual world. Remember, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that, that, that everything about our lives is not just defined by flesh and blood. There's a spiritual realm that we live in, and there's forces of good and forces of evil, and I can't even imagine the different ways that angels could minister to us and care for us when we're being mistreated or when we're in trouble. But it blesses my heart and it encourages my heart to know that God loves me and values me so much as a child that he would make sure that I even had that kind of care. And then to drive home the point about how much he cares about us as his children, he tells the story, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones, again, people who've become like little children, spiritually speaking, to receive the gift of salvation. He's not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. God loves and cares about all of us. And we should value one another. Because of that, we should value one another that we would do anything. We'd do anything to protect each other. We would do anything to, to look after each other. We would do anything uh, to show the same kind of value to each other. Well, I'm out of time, so let me bring this to a close. And Brian, you can come and, and, and we'll bring this to a close. Let me just ask you just some questions real quickly. I don't have time to focus on any of them uh, for any length of time. So just consider these questions. The first one is this, and maybe this is the most important. Not maybe, this is the most important. Have you humbled yourself like a child to become a part of God's kingdom? Have you done that? Have you been willing to make yourself low by coming to the end of yourself and recognizing your utter helplessness and hopelessness on your own based on your own merit to receive the gift of salvation and thrown yourself on the mercy of God, which is the exact right place to be? Have you done that? Or are you holding on to some level of pride that's keeping you from doing that? Some fear that's the most important question. The second question I have written down is this. Who is someone you need to welcome like you would welcome Christ? Can you think of somebody? I'm surely I'm not the only one from time to time who just gets frustrated with other believers and doesn't feel like I have the time to talk to them or the energy to talk to them. Who's somebody that you need to welcome like you would welcome Christ? The third question is, are you guilty of causing someone to sin? Pastor, I would never do that. Are you sure? When you lead someone into gossip, you lead them into sin. When you, ex when you flaunt what you think of is your Christian liberty, which is really just you dancing with sin, and you set a poor example for another believer that causes them to stumble, there's so many different ways this can happen. Are you guilty of causing someone to sin? And the fourth question I've got is this. Who is the lost sheep that's on your mind and what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? 
And the right answer isn't, you're going to tell me about it so I can do something about it. What are you going to do about it? Do you know somebody who's, for whatever reason, wandering away from their faith, who's not walking down the right path today, who is not walking toward the will of God for some reason in their life that needs to be reached out to, that needs to be encouraged, that needs to be loved back to the fellowship of believers? What are you going to do about it? If we had the heart of a small child, we could make a tremendous impact on the world around us. I remember, it's been, it's been seven years ago now, but I remember when I was sick and I was going through treatment, and I, I was just so, I was so sick, and I, I just, I just was, spent so much of my time in bed. Our little granddaughter was about a year old at the time. It was the only grandchild we had, and she had lived in our house with us, I told you before, for a little while, and we'd gotten so close during that time. I played with her so much, and, um, and she would come over to the house after they had moved out, and Sandy would watch her, and she would walk in the, come in the door, and Sandy would, would, would be carrying her, and, and the first thing she would do is she would raise her hand like that and point upstairs because she knew that's where I was, and she didn't want to do anything else until Sandy opened the door to the bedroom and so she could peek in on me and check on me because that was what was in her heart. She wanted to make sure I was there. And I remember one time I was able to be down in the den and I was sitting on the couch and our family was around us and I was just there, you know, and I, I just... I wasn't really interacting with anybody. I was just kind of being there, just wanted to be out of the room and in the presence of everybody. And she was there and I was watching her play and she looked up at me and she walked over and she crawled up on the couch and she crawled up on my lap and she laid her head on my chest. And she just laid it on my chest. She didn't talk, she couldn't talk, but she just laid her head on my chest. She didn't know what was going on with me. She just knew I was struggling. She just knew things weren't right. And she loved me in that moment. If we had the heart of a little child, every one of us, we could make a tremendous impact on the world around us. And maybe that, after everything else is all said and done, is the lesson that Jesus is teaching us about what it looks like to grow deeper in our faith and our calling.